is so important. It's the language. It's the approach. It's the explaining why I'm going to, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to touch, why I'm going to do it. And then what did I see? What did I learn from that exam? So to, to show that it had some value um, and, and to do all that with, you know, with the family member present, it, you know, whether they're there for the exam or not, but to close the loop and explain everything that was done, that is so, so, so important. And when you do that, people connect and they, you know, I don't really have, um, I don't really, it's a rare, rare, rare girl and family who will say, no, I don't want to be examined. And welcome back to Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs, where we get real about topics related to vaginas, pelvic floors, bellies, athletics, all things women's health, and sometimes even penises, and anywhere in between. Now, who you just heard was Dr. Hina Talib. Dr. Talib is board certified in pediatrics and in adolescent medicine, and she's has a subspecialty focus in adolescent gynecology. I had found her through Instagram where I must have been following a a hashtag and stumbled upon her account where she was posting stuff about adolescent pelvic pain or periods, fertility-related issues, and I started to follow her. And then I had commented on a few of her posts and then we started chatting and I thought what a great opportunity to get to know her understand what she does a little bit more and introduce her to my audience because what I've realized is not only in myself but in my patients and clients that I work with is that the problems that we have start early on in our teen years so what better way to have an impact on the world or with the podcast than by exposing moms and maybe even teenagers to something that many of us have no idea is even a thing. Like I had no idea adolescent medicine and teen gynecology was a thing. So I am super excited to have her on the show and for you guys to learn what amazing work she does. And um, yeah, I think you're really going to like this episode. And if questions come up, uh, I would love to bring her back on. I'm going to bring her back on hopefully in the future anyways, but my hope is that this will get this conversation started and not only moms, but moms about themselves, but moms raising teenage girls or soon to be raising teenage girls. You can find Dr. Talib on Instagram at teen health doc. And then you can follow the podcast Instagram account at pelvic docs podcast. And because this episode, it was on the longer side, there are parts that I didn't end up including that I will be including on the Instagram as extras. So be sure to follow the, both of our accounts as well as my personal account at the dot vagina doc. 
And if you have any questions or you would like to see something specifically on the show, please reach out. Send us a message on the uh, podcast app or iTunes. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe as well. That will really help us out. It'll really help us grow and get exposed to people on the podcast homepages. And then as For this episode and all future episodes, please remember our disclaimer. The information used in the show is meant for education and information, oh, and a bit of entertainment purposes only, and is not meant to be used as a substitute or in lieu of diagnosis, of medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. So, without further ado, let's get started with today's show. Hey everybody, welcome back to Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs. I'm your host, Dr. Jocelyn, pelvic floor physical therapist, and today I'm super excited to introduce you all to Dr. Hina Talib. Dr. Talib, thank you so much for coming on. Welcome to the show. I am so happy to be here and talk about adolescent medicine and teen health with you. Thank you for having me. Let's start off by you just sharing how you got into teen health and adolescent medicine. You know, I think I always had a nostalgia for the teenage years. I'm not that old myself yet. I'm 40 or I just turned 40 this year, but I, I just, I've always, ever since I was a teen, maybe while I was a teen and then beyond, I've always loved coming of age stories, books, coming of age movies, teen, you know, teeny bopper media. I love it all. And I think there's just a healthy sense of nostalgia for that time because it's such a monumental time with physical changes, going through puberty, cognitive changes, behavioral changes, social, emotional changes, um, that things stick in your mind from those years. And I, so I was always drawn to it. And I, you know, when I went into um, medicine, I wanted to help. I wanted to care for people. I knew very early that I wanted it to be with teenagers because um, I, I mean, I love babies. They're squishy. They smell good, and and it's fun. But um, but I really love being able to to connect with my patients and to speak to them and have them share their stories. I love to hear their stories of what's going on in their lives. And uh, you know, it's so fun to be in the know of what's kind of cool and hip and what the trends are because I because of my patients, and so I feel really connected to culture and things like that because of, of how they how openly I get all these interesting stories. So um, I knew from a young age that I wanted to do medicine that was you know I always wanted to do give back and care um, provide care but it was really cool when I really figured out that teenagers were, were it, it it just clicked and I was like oh this is exactly what I want to do. So you were always fascinated by just all things teens. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any experiences growing up that influenced this direction, you know, besides just liking the, the culture? Yeah. So um, I now specialize in, in adolescent medicine. So that is a subspecialty within pediatrics. And then within adolescent medicine, I have a focus in pediatric and adolescent gynecology. And so I do a lot of work in that, in, in that area. And I would say the seeds for that went all the way back to my teen years when I was a young girl, maybe a year after having my periods and began to have very painful periods. And by very painful periods, I mean the kind that you're 
um, you know, you're smiling through gritted teeth, you're, there's, you're, there's tears, but you don't want to show them um, because you really can't move or get out of bed and it's a struggle and you force yourself to and that's just even worse. I was missing school uh, and I was fortunate to have had my mom who had the wherewithal to take me to an adolescent medicine doctor. There are not very many adolescent medicine doctors in the country, maybe 500. Um, and so, so this is, you know, many years ago, she found one in Kansas City where, we, where I grew up. And I remember being terrified. Um, however, that doctor took me seriously. She listened, she prescribed a treatment plan for me that did include hormones. And I credit her for saving my adolescence. I mean, I went from missing two days of school, throwing up at school. That was embarrassing as heck to throw up in school, um, you know, on a monthly basis and be in the nurse's office to none of it. Like, you know, I still have pain. Uh, I still have to manage through all the other ways that we manage, manage pain, but um, I was able to function again. And so that always stuck with me. You know, I didn't know when I was a teenager, this is what I want to do. Um, and then as I got into pediatrics and adolescent medicine, and then I, I saw, started taking these girls, taking care of girls with period problems, I thought, oh my God, this is so fulfilling because if I can do what a doctor did for me when I was young and, and give these girls their, you know, their, a life without period pain, it would just be a wonderful thing. So, um, yeah, so it kind of, it all ties together in the end. That's an incredible story, especially that how big of a contrast it is of my own, where I, same issues, I would just have horrible, horrible pain. I'd miss school and I was prescribed Vicodin and I might've been 14 or 15 or even younger. And I remember just, I had to have my heating pad all the time uh, during my cycle. I couldn't sleep. For the first three days, I bled through my clothes like every period because it was just so heavy. I should have worn a diaper, mm -hmm. but um, I feel like I wasn't. It would I would have been really beneficial for me to see someone that had that specialty, but I doubt it existed where I lived. I was in out uh, about twenty miles south of Pittsburgh. I could it could have been, but I mentioned on my Instagram today that. I never saw a pediatrician. I don't know why. I always wondered that. Yeah, that's and, surprising. Yeah, I, I don't, I think maybe initially from a baby I, I might have, but from then I was forced to see my family GP and I was just traumatized. I, I hope people yeah. stop listening, but that was always a traumatic experience. I thought he was crazy. to hear that. Mm -hmm. But uh, so your experience, you... Was your, I think I heard or read that your mom was a pediatrician. Is that right? She is, she is a pediatrician and she's sort of like an inspiration for me. And she, uh, yeah, so I think that helped that she knew of a colleague in adolescent medicine because um, she, they worked together. So, uh, so that certainly helped her have an awareness of the field and, um, and, you know, being able to get me an appointment and being able to have me be seen like, this is all, you know, I was very privileged to have that. And I recognize that and I, um, and I, it pains me that there aren't enough adolescent medicine doctors or pediatric and adolescent gynecologists around. Um, 
and I, well, maybe I take that back. They are there, but we need to do more to raise everybody's awareness to let them know that they even exist. Because even now, I mean, even when I was a pe when I went into pediatric residency and I started as an intern, my intern year, I did not know what adolescent medicine was. I like, it took me until I, until I had an adolescent medicine rotation. And then I, and then I sort of was thinking back to my childhood and I was like, mom, who was that doc? That was really nice and it put me on the pills. Who was that doc? And she said, oh, she's actually a pediatric and adolescent gynecologist. And I was like, I didn't know that until I was a medical student. So if, I mean, and maybe I blocked it out because it was also traumatic. Um, you know, and I, and I felt like I moved past it and put it, put it to bed or something like that. But it was very, it, like it took me until I was in medical, not medical residency, to know, to think back and ask my mom and, and figure out what this field was. And if that's me, then what about all the other people out there who don't have, you know, medical family members or, um, you know, haven't, aren't friends with a gynecologist who they could like run this by? Um, I, I, you know, it breaks my heart that there are people that just don't know that you, there, that, you know, that your pediatrician may, or your, or your regular OBGYN, they may not know the approach and they may not know the way to, um, you know, the way to kind of make a team feel comfortable and, um, and come up with a, a holistic treatment plan. So, um, yeah, so I'm sorry that you had that experience. I really am. You yeah. know, I, I could think of it and be bitter about it, but I'm really happy that I had all those experiences growing up because they did influence where I am today for sure. So can you now talk about well, what is the what is it about an adolescent, someone who is specialized in ad treating adolescents and adolescent gynecology? What what can you do now that someone that doesn't have that training can't can't Yeah, so I think things that you learn. I mean, you learn a lot of content, like a lot mm -hmm. of just general knowledge about how um, certain certain conditions present in adolescent. Uh, in adolescents as compared to adults. Uh, and it, you know, if you don't see a lot of teens or little girls uh, in your practice, then you forget things or they're not as at the tip of your tongue as it is for uh, other ages. So some of it is just volume. Like if you're, if you're, you know, doing this day in and day out, you know, or, you know, you have a comfort with it. And you have a comfort with your patients as opposed to if you're really your panel is mostly like women trying to get pregnant or pregnant women and then all of a sudden you have the six-year-old walk in and you're like oh that's different um, and you have to brush up on it and read a book that's very you know those are going to be two different things so having the extra training and the training time you training is all about seeing as many kids as you can to develop those skills so it's a lot of just time and practice and how to make a kiddo comfortable and how to make a family member comfortable and then how to make a team comfortable with these sorts of exams and then keeping up with things you know there's a lot of stuff that um, for example larks these long-acting reversible contraception methods they were not so hot you know 10 years ago and right now there are favorite first-line treatments for um, for contraception but for other things too including girls who have really painful periods because sometimes we just take the period away using this method and um, you know, so you don't always get all the training in kind of a general pediatrics residency. So you, there are skills, there's um, interview, like technical skills of, of putting in these things. There's interviewing skills, the approach to an adolescent. Um, I think we, you and I have talked a little bit about confidentiality and that's, 
not something that everybody's super comfortable with, even though we're all taught about it in, in, um, as medical team people, but to, to know that it's important and then to also be able to feel bold enough to negotiate it and demand it and support it and um, you know ensure to the families that we really strongly believe in open communication between everybody here. So it's not that we're trying to um, keep them out of the, the triad. We actually really want our teens to be open with their families. Um, but it's important for us to take the time to have to ask our questions and do our counseling as well. Sure. So the biggest difference in this specialty is just the depth of training from a course, like a book textbook standpoint, but also an experience standpoint. And I can tell you and you, the listeners, that if you bring your kid in to see me, I can help, but I would much rather you see a pelvic, phys pelvic physical therapist that specializes in teens and pediatrics because it's totally different from not only the approach, but the language. And mm -hmm. language is so important. It's, it's the thing that can make or break whether someone tells you something and then therefore the course of the care from then forward. So that makes total sense. Now, well, what excites you about, what's your, what's the most, what do you get most excited about in treating teens? What I get most excited about is really that they, the changes um, that I can make, interventions that I can make, hopefully with them in their teen years, might be able to actually stay with them or carry with them throughout their adult lives. A little bit of what you said, like you, there were some positive messages that you heard when you were younger and you were able to re reflect on them later. I would love to be able to do that. And I do, I feel like I am doing that. And it's just, it's such a, it makes you feel so good because, you know, for me, and again, everybody has their own cup of tea. For me, taking care of adults is not my cup of tea. Um, you know, and, and uh, it's just, it, no, you know, I, I don't mean to insult them, but, you know, adults just have a lot of chronic problems and a lot of things that they've been doing for a long time. A lot of behaviors like smoking or drinking or the way they eat or the way they don't move. And it's, it takes a lot of work to um, make, make changes. And that's why you start small and you make small changes and they become big changes. But it, um, it's, it's very daunting to me to take care of adults. Whereas an adolescent, they just started experimenting with the behavior. Like maybe they've smoked for like, or they vaped for a little bit, like a couple of months, a year. And for me to be able to, to get in there and get some positive messaging in and, and work with their own kind of motivation for change, it actually works. You're actually able to, to take a team who is experimenting, exploring, which is actually developmentally normal to do, um, and then educate them and have them make a you know, some better choices. It's a beautiful thing to be able to see. And then those choices can stick with them for their young adulthood, for um, you know, later in life. And it's just, I feel like you can really change entire paths of life if you can help a team. Yeah, absolutely. While some teens, teens might seem like monsters, yeah, so I have two toddlers, and um, and you're raising your hand, me, me, me. Um, I have two toddlers, and I feel like there are a lot of um, what should I call it overlaps between the you know terrible twos or the toddler tantrums and teens. 
I'm kind of hoping that the middle years are, are easier, but I'm being told that each year has its own challenges. But, um, but there are, you know, it's a storm. It's a storm of hormones and body changes and emotional changes. And, um, and some of that is developmentally normal. And some of it is, if you think back to how toddlers are and you just have to, if they're having a tantrum, you just have to sort of, you know, not give it attention and walk away and just let it and, and let them know that you're there for them and that you unconditionally love them. And that when they're ready, we can, you know, problem solve together and this and that. It's very similar with teens, just to let them know that you're there for them. And, and, um, and yet they're going to have these powerful, powerful emotions and you don't try to unvalidate them. You just say, okay, all right. I'm here for you. High school is such a challenging time. And so having, even if you're, you, and I'm saying as the teen doesn't listen to the parents, you as the provider play a huge role because more than likely, like for me, I listened to my coaches mm -hmm. and I listened to providers that I trusted and teachers that I trusted. Mm -hmm. So, and at that time, I feel like, my, what I developed, the habits that I developed in my teen years are what, where I am today. The discipline, the teamwork, the passion for things. So for someone to be, to come in contact with you, you really do set the stage for the rest of their life. No pressure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And again, I mean, it's, it's not always one and done. It's not, it's sometimes it's a process and a relationship before, before you can actually, you know, make a change. Um, but that's okay. That's why I like, that's why I like adolescent medicine. That's why I love what I do. And, um, and regards to, you know, the painful periods and what for me ended up being endometriosis. It's just how I've learned about endometriosis through reflecting back on what I went through because I didn't even hear that word even though I saw the right specialist and it might have been that um it was just too painful and I started I zoned out and I wasn't listening I don't I don't know I'm shocked that I didn't quite make the connections about what I had until later in life well it seems like endometriosis wasn't talked about that much until relatively recently I mean yeah. there was which brings me into my next question or topic is that does that fall into fertility issues in adolescence yeah yeah, yeah. okay so I'm very interested in um fertility discussing fertility in adolescence because i think that pediatricians and other people who work with teens are laser focused on contraception counseling and um you know what you can do to prevent unintended pregnancies and that's wonderful and super important um, but I also think it's important to talk about fertility and, and the reason is so, so my, as I alluded to earlier, I have endometriosis, uh, and that, uh, presented as a teen year is in my teen years, but I didn't really understand or get diagnosed until I had sonograms until I was trying to have a baby and had a hard time, um, very hard time. And, and so as my path through the infertility world, I, that's when I realized that I had endometriosis. That's when I realized I had an endometrioma, um, like a cyst on my ovary. I didn't know that before because I was sort of rocking and rolling on autopilot on these pills for most of my life since I was 14 years old. And um, so, yeah, I, I think that, that for me, I'm passionate about, I mean, you're passionate about the things that you've you know, experienced in life. And so um, I'm, I definitely, am able to and interested in taking care of all parts of a teenager, 
but things that I've personally been through, oh boy, I really, I, I really hope to help in those areas. What other things are underneath the umbrella of fertility? Yeah, you were asking me this before. I remember you were like, what do you mean by fertility counseling in a teenager? So yeah. What, yeah, yeah, it's a good question. What I mean is it's sort of fertility awareness. I would love for every teen to know that um, how a menstrual cycle works. You know, not everybody quite gets that in, in school. Uh, some do, some don't. Some people look at that chart and they're like, oh God, run for the hills. Like, I don't want to look at it anymore. Um, but I think the basics of how a period works, you know, how, you, how an ovary ovulates um, and a little, the basics about what a normal period is so that things that fall outside of that, that they would know to ask for help because people don't always um, teach that or, or hear that. And then there are, if there are problems with your period, so if it falls out of normal parameters, not to poo-poo it or not to just just treat it because a lot of people will say okay you have you have painful periods which are normal quote unquote we'll call it dysmenorrhea and we'll treat it with motrin and then they leave it at that and they don't have a further discussion of or they'll have irregular periods and they might say okay it's irregular let's put you on the pills and it'll make it regular but they don't talk about wait why why was it irregular? Is it polycystic ovary syndrome? Is it premature ovarian insufficiency? Is it, you know, stress? Is it an eating disorder that's being hidden? Um, and so I think that the, the why sometimes get missed. And the reason it matters is because all of these things impact fertility. So if you get diagnosed with um, a medical condition in your teen years, I feel like sometimes, ranging from anything, from cancer to um, PCOS to a thyroid problem, all of these medical conditions, there is a little bit of guidance we could give. So in the future, when you are ready to try, file this in the back of your mind that it might be more difficult, but there are great medications available that'll help you. So don't wait as long as other people would wait before you see a therapist, a, sorry, not a therapist, before you see a fertility doctor. Um, that kind of nuggets of just, you know, telling the mom, telling the teen, uh, just as you're giving them counseling about whatever the medical part of the medical condition is, it's important. Sometimes there's medications. Sometimes you're putting, you know, they, you're putting teens on a medication that might impact their future fertility. This comes up in transgender care. This comes up in um, cancer. Uh, and, and so having, to me, that's all part of fertility counseling is, well, you know, maybe you should call in an adolescent metastock, let them have a conversation with the family to know and give them options of what they can do to, you know, protect their future fertility. Sometimes there's genetic conditions like sickle cell or, um, things like that, where, uh, it might, what I call fertility counseling is just having that conversation. Well, you know what, it might be important to you to know who your, you know, what your partner's status is with sickle cell, because there's a higher risk for um, a kiddo if, you know, if, and, and sometimes, you know, yeah, I get a lot of eye rolls, I get a lot of like, I, I'm not even thinking about this, I'm, I mean, I'm not gonna have a baby anytime soon, I'm 15 years old, doc, you're like, you're being crazy, but it doesn't bother me, because I know that it's being, it's just important to say out loud to the family, and let them file it wherever they want to file it, because what I hate is for people who are grown women to say, I never knew that X, Y, or Z condition could have had anything to do with my future fertility. Um, you know, STDs, PID, the, all of these things can affect future fertility. And we're very quick to say, you know, oh my gosh, you have an STD, we have to treat it. 
um, if you treat your partners, we do all, you know, we cross our T's and dot our I's, but sometimes kiddos don't get the message that, um, you know, actually every time you get pelvic inflammatory disease, your future fertility takes a 10 to 20% hit and it's cumulative. And, and that's really, that's, you know, and so I say, think of yourself when you're older, however old you think you, you might want to be when you have a baby. Um, and looking back at you now that, you know, you're, you'll be so, you would be so upset if you knew that you could, you know, if you, or you'd be so longing to go back in time, change some of these decisions. Um, and then also, you know, I think there's a lot of really strong misconceptions about age-related fertility decline. There a lot of people overestimate IVF. People just think it's this magic bullet. And, um, and so that's, that's something I like to say early on that, you know, the, the, your ideal child, you know, bearing fertility years are actually in your 20s. Um, and even though nowadays people say, oh, wait till your 30s, it doesn't matter, but, but, you know, because you see all this stuff. You see 40-year-olds in Hollywood, 50-year-olds in Hollywood having these babies, and you think it's normal, and it's, it's really not. So educating about all of that is what I call fertility here in teens. Yeah. There was so much great stuff that you said, but if I'm hearing you right, so fertility counseling includes, at the basic level, educating the, your patients, their families, about how the menstrual cycle works, how to identify some signs or symptoms that might suggest that you, that a teen cycles out of the norm. And then really, instead of jumping to treating it right away, asking why, well, why is, why are you having irregular periods? Why are you having painful periods? Uh, why are you missing periods? And then count whatever treatment approach you take, you have to get buy-in with your patient. So telling them, well, hey, this, did you know that this could impact your ability to, or your fertility down the road when you're ready to have kids? Mm -hmm. And uh, I can say this, if one thing that I struggle with is when I'm working with my patients that are younger, and if I were talking to my teen self, I would have said, I would have not gotten to, hey, you, sh you, you should really think about improving whatever I don't wouldn't know what to say at this mm -hmm. specifically like peeing while you're playing soccer and leaking urine is not something to cheer about losing your period is something is not something to be excited about I I wouldn't have bought into any treatment options because I didn't care but if you would have told me at the time hey you might not be able to have children if you don't if, if you stop having a period and you continue all the things that you're doing at that time, I would have listened to that. I don't know if I would listen to it now, but I, pro <laughs> I probably would, but, but um, yeah, that's huge. Yeah. And that is one thing like you're in, when you're in a te your teen years, you're thinking about the boxes, even though I'm against the boxes, like stop mm -hmm. trying to check the boxes of go to college, get married, have children. The, mm -hmm. That's how teens think. And yeah. so you got to think like a teen. So saying that could, you could really get buy-in. So that, that was really helpful, uh, a helpful description and I'm, <laughs> I'm describing what fertility meant. So mm -hmm. now I guess, what are the biggest things that biggest issues that you see in teens along the lines of fertility problems? Um, the biggest issues, let's see, if I go by the most, Co most common things, I would say polycystic ovary syndrome is very, very common. 
and you know one in eight to one in ten women uh, can be affected and people often don't know that it it is that it presents in teenage years and people don't know that is because often it doesn't get again diagnosed until women are a little bit older but it actually is a, a, a disease that presents in adolescence so paying attention to and it's important to treat it uh, because it has risk for an increased risk for diabetes and things that you really want to prevent from happening if you possibly can. So um, that's probably, I do a, a good amount of polycystic ovary syndrome um, care and counseling and fertility counseling for teen girls. Um, what else do I see the most commonly? I mean, your straight up dysmenorrhea painful period workup. So um, I see a lot of that and that can be you know, it can go anywhere from, from um, kind of your developmental normal period pain, like primary dysmenorrhea, to other causes of, of dysmenorrhea, or um, end up in a chronic pain territory, which can be, you know, from uh, endometriosis, adenomyosis. Um, girls who've had a lot of pelvic inflammatory disease can get chronic pelvic pain, and so we see that sometimes. Girls who've been abused, and we see that sometimes. And, um, and then I also see, you know, this is not so much pain related, but I see in terms of periods, I see a lot of periods that, like you said, don't come at all or come too late or are missing. And so what's that all about and what's causing that? And sometimes it's PCO, but sometimes it could be other things. Um, we see a lot of eating disorders present with period problems. And so unfortunately, that's one of the ways that we're able to pick it up sometimes. Um, heavy bleeding, you know, there's a lot of heavy bleeders that um, that girls can get really anemic from, and they can actually sometimes be admitted to the hospital and require blood transfusions, which is crazy that that happens. But it happens, and um, and it you know some some of these girls again, they just don't know that it's not normal to uh, to soil your underwear or your bed sheets. They just think, oh, on well, the first day it's heavy, and that's that's normal. And it's again, it's because people don't talk about it, but. It's actually not normal. That is, that's too heavy if, if things are being soiled you know, on a regular basis and not because you didn't change your pad, but because it's that heavy that it's just gushing out. Um, I have a lot of girls who do wear diapers because they, they, they bleed so heavy and they, um, they've been doing it for so long, they just think it's normal. They're like, oh yeah, I wear like a, you know, an adult um, depends at night. And I was like, wait, what? No, I, that's not normal. Like that, that's something we need to talk about and check and make sure you're not anemic and figure out why that's going on. So those, that's kind of a, a rainbow of different reasons why you might end up seeing me for um, adolescent gynecology issues. So PCOS, dysmenorrhea, whether that's primary, meaning uh, the problem is just normal periods. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Versus secondary uh, dysmenorrhea, 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 which comes from uh, other issues like endometriosis, PCOS, other things that we already talked about, eating disorders, heavy bleeding. So how long does it take to diagnose these problems or find the answers? Not that long. I mean, usually you can do a lot, like 90% from just speaking to somebody, unless, especially if they have a good record of their periods. Um, and then and then hormone tests. So a lot, you know, we may do a, a battery of hormone tests to see whether it's a thyroid, whether it's stress, whether it's just that the the um, period, the hormone axis is still early in having periods and that's why it's irregular and it, we expect it to normalize. 
So we do a lot of um, a lot of talking, a lot of careful history taking, and then some blood tests. But you're usually able to make any of these diagnoses, um, except for maybe chronic pelvic pain, which takes you know you have to have it for a little while before we would call it that. Um, you would be able to make these diagnoses, and then for you know endometriosis we can have a high degree of suspicion for it, but really to make a diagnosis, you need to have a laparoscopy to see it. Um, and we don't dilly-dally when it comes to that. We make sure that teens kind of um, get treated and if our treatments are not working, then very quickly we get them into um, a uh, pediatric and adolescent, adolescent gynecologist who can do that procedure. Cool. So, you talked about how you have a, you talked about how a lot of it is conversations, but if you do do a physical exam besides hormone testing, what else would you do? Yeah, um, so that's a good point. So the, so there's not, um, it's very, you're very careful when you're going to decide to do a physical exam. So you don't, so if a girl just comes in with painful periods, regular painful periods, um, even if they're like bad painful periods, you don't really need to do a physical exam um, unless they're sexually active and you're worried about it being um, a pelvic inflammatory disease situation. Then you need to do a what we call a bimanual exam to see if they're if the infection has kind of gone up towards their cervix um, and their uterus and if there's pain with with that. But um, but if it's just heavy bleeding, um, spotting, a period that's missing, you don't always necessarily need to jump to an exam in a girl that's not sexually active. If you have a girl that's already sexually active, it's, you know, I then my approach is different because they're usually typically gonna be more comfortable with the exam. And if a girl is sexually active, then you always have on your differential or your list of things that you're worried about, STDs and PID. Um, and so you, then you actually should be doing um, a, what we call an internal pelvic exam. But, um, but again, in the girls that are not sexually active, there's really, no reason. You might look to see what we call sexual maturity rating to see where they are in puberty, and you can tell by the size of things and by the hair pattern. Um, but that can be done depending on their age and comfort level. That doesn't even necessarily have to be in stirrups. So um, it's really coming up with you know you can just be in a butterfly position and you can just peek and um, and see what you need to see. So, and sometimes you don't need to the, you may not need to do the exam on the first visit, depending on how uncomfortable or cautious the family is. A lot of teens, you know, as long as you say exactly what you're doing and they feel safe and you have a chaperone, whether it's their parent or whatever, are, are totally cool with an exam. Um, and so I don't really find it to be a holdup, but I think what you said before is so important. It's the language it's the approach, it's the explaining why I'm gonna, what I'm gonna do, what I'm gonna touch, why I'm gonna do it, and then what did I see? What did I learn from that exam? So to, to show that it had some value um, and, and to do all that with, you know, with the family member present, it, you know, whether they're there for the exam or not, but to close the loop and explain everything that was done, that is so, so, so important. And when you do that, people connect and they, you know, I don't really have, um, I don't really, it's a rare, rare, rare girl and family who will say, no, I don't want to be examined. That makes sense. And it makes sense that you wouldn't always do a physical exam. <clears throat> uh, but let's say, let's say your patient says she has pain with tampon use. Mm -hmm. Would you do a physical, physical exam at then? 
Yeah, so if a girl said that they have pain with tampon use, again, if they're sexually active, yes, for sure. Um, because they're sexually active, they're gonna be more comfortable with it anyway. If they're not sexually active, um, you know, I might look from the outside first to see what I could see because I worry about imperfect hymen, I worry about obstructive things that are um, structural things that might not be normal. Sometimes you can do a sonogram um, to pick up on some structural things that could not be normal. Uh, and so you could look at that, you know, if that girl, the tampon thing, like if they're also not bleeding, then I have, would have more concerns because sometimes girls are experimenting with tampons before they bleed. Um, but if they're bleeding normally, and um, then we might, we might try different sizes, we might try um, ha coaching them through putting it in because it might be that they're not relaxing um, to put it in. So there might, you know, there are things, again, same, like it's approach. Like you just, depending on if they're sexually active or not, and depending on um, you know, how willing they are to kind of talk through some of these things, uh, versus like, are they having a lot of period pain? Is there, is there, are they not having periods and they're having monthly pain and I'm worried about an obstructive lesion? Then yeah, you may want to look a little bit more. So it's really, there is no, there's no way for me to say, I'm not going to look if you come to see me. Um, but I will say, I'm not going to do anything that makes you uncomfortable. And, and um, I will be explaining to you everything that we're going to do and why. So if you're listening and you're a mom or you're a teen, and you go to see a provider, whether you are in the presence of an adolescent specialist, that should be what you're looking for, is someone that isn't forcing a different components of an exam on you if you're not ready, because that just isn't helpful, that's traumatic, and it could impact you going back. So something that you can ask when calling the office, like what's going to happen in the exam might be helpful, but total makes total sense. So as a as a pelvic floor physical therapist, I have to ask you, I'm always thinking, well, I get nervous because I, I don't want to miss things from a medical diagnosis standpoint, because I care about muscles, ligaments, nerves. So the first and foremost, whenever I hear painful sex, pain with tampon use, pain with pelvic exams. So sometimes gynecologists will send uh, younger patients, teens to, to someone like me because they can't do a pelvic exam and they need to. Mm -hmm. um, it's mu it, that you, I'm sure you've heard of vaginismus or mm -hmm. they, their muscles are just overactive and preventing any sort of penetrative, mm -hmm. any penetration, whether it's with a speculum or with a finger. Do you feel confident in screening, differentiating when it's, because it, it, this is actually really tough. It's hard to know if it's primary muscle spasms versus hormonally driven, and often it is hormonally driven, or just idiopathic vaginismus. Yeah, I think it's, I think, so yeah, we definitely would evaluate for that if, if they are, um, if, you know, if lube doesn't fix it and relaxing doesn't fix it, then yes, then you know we have to pay a little bit more attention because again, it's not normal. Um, but with a teen, when it when when I've heard this before, it you know I you do have to get you have to dig deep with your history and really find out what their experiences with um, wanted or unwanted sexual activity has been because sometimes or even like. They saw, you know, the doctor that tried to do the pelvic exam the first time, what, it was so traumatizing that then, as you said, they don't come back. But if they do come back, 
and that same doctor or a different doctor has tried again and again, it sets up the situation where they cannot relax for the exam. And, um, and so it really, you know, then you really have to go back and say, what is the purpose of this exam? How badly do we need this pelvic exam? And if you can't, you know, if you aren't able to do it, then maybe there's something there to treat um, with therapy or whatnot, or, um, or maybe there's something in the history. Maybe there's a therapy component that needs to be brought in. Maybe we need to have child life, to have a musician, have them play their favorite song, have, a, you know, have them pick who to bring into the room um, and maybe do it slowly over a couple of sessions in terms of getting up to being able to do a full speculum exam. But that's, that's all about why that first approach is so important. And if you don't feel comfortable with the person who's doing the, you know, that first exam, you as a parent and as a team have every right to just say, stop, I'm not comfortable. Like, sorry, I, you know, we'll come up, tell me what we can do for a plan that doesn't involve this. And, and they will tell you, realistically, I will not be able to tell the difference between X, Y, or Z, but this is how we would treat it regardless. And you would say, well, if it doesn't really change what we're going to do, let's just do what we were going to do. Um, so, you know, I think it's their, their uh, important, it's really important for, for parents, families, and teens to feel like they have the right to communicate how they're feeling and what they're comfortable with. And I wish that that would happen from the first exam and the first attempt of an exam. Because like you said, I think it just snowballs. Yeah, it, set the, it for sure sets the stage for future care and future experiences in that area. Right. How do you have conversations around sex with your patients and around eating yeah. disorders and disordered eating patterns? Because that seems to be a really challenging and delicate subject to broach. Mm-hmm. Well, so I, I do full eating disorder care. So I, um, you know, not just periods, but I will, I, I evaluate teens, preteens, young adults uh, who either somebody has suspected it or the parent has suspected it. And sometimes it ends up being an eating disorder, which is a mental health condition or a mental diagnosable mental health disorder. Or sometimes it ends up being something else like a thyroid problem or celiac or, um, irritable bowel syndrome, you know, something else. And so it's important to, I think the, the benefit of seeing an adolescent medicine doctor when you're worried about an eating disorder is that we think about, you know, all the things that it could be, not just the periods. Um, it could be, you know, it could be not eating enough food. It could be, which could be related to a medical condition. It could also be anorexia, not anorexia, sorry. It could also be anxiety or depression as what's causing somebody not to eat, but not an eating disorder. And eating disorder, the top ones are anorexia and bulimia. Um, and so teasing that all out is something that, that I think adolescent medicine doctors are well suited to do. And periods, as you probably know, are, are no longer in the way that we, uh, part of our diagnostic criteria for anorexia nervosa. That changed in like 2014 or 15. Um, and the reason is not all girls period with um, with anorexia nervosa, and some of them will, if they progress on the track of you know without intervention, they will be losing it. But we weren't able to say that they have anorexia nervosa now because they still have their periods, but they they definitely have the disorder. They just because of this one criteria, so they they took it away, and also they took it away because boys are being diagnosed left and right. Um, with eating disorders, and we weren't able to actually say that a boy has an eating disorder because there was this period criteria. So for very many good reasons, they took that thing out, and um, and I appreciate that. 
but um, the, the only negative is that sometimes that people don't think to talk about the periods anymore because it's not part of your checkbox to diagnose anorexia nervosa anymore. Um, but, you know, again, if you're with a specialist, of course, they're going to talk to you about your periods and, um, and they can be useful in, in, you know, suggesting whether you have a girl who um, isn't meeting her calories in calories out match that needs to be there to be able to have a healthy body. And, um, and it's a useful sign for when the body's back to being healthy again, when that kind of system clicks and starts working again, it's kind of helpful to say, hey, this might be the weight then that we need to be at because your body's telling us the weight, not the, you know, not the calculations. Super interesting. And this brings me back to when I reached out to you and we were messaging on Instagram and I said, Did, have you heard of relative energy deficiency syndrome? Well, you're saying it right now. The only difference is it could be eating disorder or disordered eating patterns. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I used, I mean, I would go to soccer practice, then to basketball practice, and I then I would spend the last two hours getting my homework in and then go to bed when I was in high school. And uh, But I was on birth control, so I had no idea. My birth control, my period was just all over the place, but birth control quit made it regular but I think that as I learned about it in women's physiology when I was in college I was like well how would I even know if I'm eating enough because if I'm on birth control because I'm getting this this artificial period can you talk about that at all yeah so it's um that's a very good question you know it's not the only tell that your body is not working well um, right. you know, other tells like like an extreme is that if you have a stress fracture yeah. um, because that means that you not only have low the bone density you actually have a stress fracture like that's a big deal when that happens but um if a girl hasn't had a period for a year um and that's you know not helpful because you're saying in the case that something happened but if a girl hasn't had a period for a year for whatever reason medical mental health meaning an eating disorder um you're supposed to get a, uh, a DEXA, a bone scan, to look for low bone density so, so you can advise them that, hey, you're at risk of a stress fracture. So it's helpful, and again, that's, you know, that's technical, but that's all part of eating disorder care, is that if you're not having your periods, you shouldn't really get a bone scan. Um, but so your bones take a hit, your period takes a hit, your mind takes a hit. Yeah. You know, that's kind of a hard one to, um, to, to measure, especially if like, you can't self-measure that because your mind isn't working. But when your brain isn't fed, and, and this goes on for a long time, and that means that your calories in don't match your calories out, then um, your brain regresses. Like you cognitively aren't able to think clearly. You have um, distorted thoughts about how you look and what you're eating and what your goals are and what the consequences are and what the effects are. And it's not you, it's the disease, it's the disorder, and it's the malnourishment of your brain. And once you fix that um, balance of calories in, calories out, and of course make up for what was lost, so a little bit more for a little while, um, your brain starts working again and you stop kind of uh, having your days centered around um, rituals or eating, not eating, working out, not working out, like all of that. And, um, and so it's harder, it's easier for someone else who, who loves and cares and knows about you to be able to help you through that. Because if it gets to that point, 
then um, you know, you're not going to ever think that there's anything wrong because your brain and the disorder is not letting you see that. I think this is really important for coaches to hear and parents to hear, especially with sports, that aesthetics is a part of it. So gymnastics, dance, cheer, uh, track and field. So any sport that low weight is generally considered a good thing, which whether or not it is not the point, but it's really, yeah, yeah. Wrestling. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So the reason being is if we look at the most elite athletes out there, they're not only are physically very that miraculous, but also from a mental health standpoint, they have extremely high mental fortitude in that. I mean, it's both the mindset and the body, the body function during a sport. So it's not beneficial to cut calories because you're going to get, it's going to show up somewhere else for sure. Right. And I think true, true elite athletes who are, you know, top of the game, they know this and they have nutritionists and dietitians and they have people kind of on top of their, of, of this stuff. It's, you know, because you know, they're, they're at the top of their field. They have all these people, but I, I worry about, um, and yet you do still hear, but you hear it more about, you know, with young girls who are at the top of their fields that sometimes things can still get missed. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. So I have just a few things that I wanted to share with you and we can, I'm going to just have to have you on again in the future to hit other thing, the other topics, but That's great. so I did a poll on Instagram and Facebook and out of, I have the question was, are you comfortable talking as a team? Were you comfortable talking about a healthcare provider about sex? 13, 13 yeses or 16% of people said yes. 70 no's. Yeah. 80% in said That's no. Heartening, but not surprising. Yes. And then the other one, which is better and with a positive have you ever lied to a healthcare provider as a teen about how many sexual partners you've had? I've got 18 yeses and then 53 no's. Wow. So that's pretty good. I think yeah. that in people's biggest insecurities were likability or what people thought of them and it being accepted. Sexuality, acne, size, weight, being seen as a slut mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, those were the biggest insecurities as a teen. So, uh, That's cool. that is actually very helpful for me to hear. So thank you for sharing that. You know, I think that just goes back to the importance of training my future doctors and, um, and going and, and, and finding yourself a doctor that has the right approach and is comfortable and isn't judgmental and doesn't make you feel that because that's not the point. The point is to figure out how we can best help you. For sure. And I am, I'm so appreciative that you were so generous with your time. I do have a challenge for you being that you already are killer at the identifying the energy deficiency. My challenge to you is to add in a little bit more of the conversation around the muscle component with your patients. Hey, while this, th these are things that can certainly be going on there. You do have a pelvic floor, which are part of your core system. Mm -hmm. And so this might be why we need to check this area. Mm 
Mm -hmm. um, but I am just blown away by how fabulous your, you, your presence is on Instagram. And then I wish you were my doctor. Oh, that is very kind of <laughs> you. And I do, um, you know, I am here to educate. I'm not selling anything. I don't have a private practice. Um, I really am passionate about teaching. And so I would love teens and parents and really anyone who works with young people to, um, to follow me at, on Instagram. It's at teenhealthdoc. Is there any other ways that the listeners can reach you or connect with you? Um, right now, that is the best way. I, you know, I, I do see patients at the Children's Hospital at Montefiore in New York, so I'm always available for consultations to see patients. Um, but the Instagram is where I'm doing most of my talking and teaching. Okay. Any online co consults that people out of state could connect with you or that work with you? That is a timely, hugely interesting, good question because, you know, our hospital, not unlike many children's hospitals across the country, has jumped into telehealth given, um, wow, we did not talk about the pandemic at all. I know. How interesting. Um, just because, you know, I'm just, I'm, I don't think I've gone an hour without talking about it. So that's wonderful. I love that we did that. Um, okay. But anyway, the... Um, so, we're, so yes, we have jumped into telehealth. Right now, I think it's the, the way insurances are working is um, really to, for it to be within the state. But, we, but that, stay tuned. There are possibilities now that weren't there before because of all of the uh, creativity and advances in telehealth. So I'm, I'm excited about that option. Well, Dr. Talib, did we get real today? We did. And I hope that, you know, I hope that it struck a chord in somebody and please, you know, feel empowered to, uh, to ask the questions that you might be afraid to ask, to believe girls about pain and about things that they might have to share, and, and to find the right doctor, find the right fit. Um, ask them, hey, are you adolescent medicine trained, or how do I find one? And, or do you, what's pediatric and adolescent gynecology mean to you? Do you, have you trained in that? Um, it's okay to ask these things, and I hope we get them too. Great piece of advice. Thank you so much. Until next time on Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs.